clock that was ticking in my home. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information, security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Votero and uh, yeah, Votero does content disarm and reconstruction stuff and its CEO Ravi Srinivasan joins me in this week's sponsor interview uh, a little bit later on to talk about the contemporary use cases for CDR tech. That is coming up a little bit later on, but before we get to that, it is, of course, time for a check of the week's security news with our good friend Adam Boileau. And of course, uh, you know, Adam, we ran a bit of a different intro music this week because British police have arrested a 17-year-old alleged hacker uh, from Oxfordshire in England. And the thinking is that this kid is Teapot, who is thought to be uh, the person who did the the Rockstar Games hack and the Uber hack. So uh, bad times for that kid. But he's very lucky he's not American because otherwise, you know, he'd be going to Supermax. Yes, indeed. We saw the British police uh, round up a few alleged members of Lapsus back in March. So obviously they had some, you know, pretty good intel uh, and uh, ideas about who was involved and what they were doing. So seems a little bit dumb if that if you're also a, a British hacker kid to keep on going. But uh, as we saw back in the LulzSec days, it's kind of hard once you get on this train uh, to manage to you know get off and uh, do something else other than this. So yeah, if this kid is in fact Teapot, probably going to get uh, get some books thrown at him. But as you say better than uh, if uh, it was in the US. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's funny, right? Because I was thinking back to the last time we had these type of chaotic actors uh, uh, doing this sort of stuff, and it had to be Lulzsec. And the real difference here is the vibe, because Lulzsec were just really, really funny. And that was because Jake Davis, who was one of the members, was a very funny guy who used to write very funny things. And that's why I think people kind of liked Lulzsec, because they were just undeniably funny. Yes, I know we were all rooting, all rooting for LolSec back in the day, which felt a bit, you know, uh, you know, being a security professional who has customers that need protecting from chaotic children, um, it did feel a little bit bad. But um, yeah, they were they were just funny and they were good and they, you know, you, you just really got that sense of of enjoyment of you know kind of yeah. being a jester of being comedians of not taking themselves too seriously. Whereas Lapsus, you, they're just mean. They're yeah, just mean kids, yeah. you know. <laughs> Mean and nasty. You know, hacking is meant to have a sense of fun and joy and, you know, thumbing your nose at authority and all that. And you really got that from Lulzsec uh, and, you know, not not. Whereas so these are just nasty things. little megalomaniacs, aren't they? Like, that's that's the vibe. That That is the vibe that you get, yeah. And, you know, just, you know, stealing source code from games and ruining their creative process. And, you know, it's just kind of, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we have rose-tinted glasses about Lulzsec, but it was just funnier. This isn't the only hacker that we think got got this week. <laughs> uh, so there's some strange developments in Australia. So big data breach here involving Optus, which is the second largest telco in the country. Now, what we think happened is they accidentally exposed an unauthenticated API to the internet. And the API, the address was api.www.optus.com.au. It's been a PR disaster, right, for, for Optus because they've really handled this badly. But I think that, you know, whoever did this exfil, and I can't even call it a hack, right? It's barely a hack. But I think whoever did this exfil 
uh, got something like info on like, you know, 10 million Australians, including, you know, name, date of birth, uh, you know, phone number, of course, and then like driver's license numbers, passport numbers, stuff like that, like the the, the document ID number of the, per, of the ID the person used uh, to set up uh, the account, which is obviously not really stuff you want out there. But I also feel that people have been going a little bit overboard in saying that this is the end of the world because ultimately it's just a number right it's not like you can recreate the document from that number it it, it will have some utility to fraudsters but it is not a complete disaster yet do you know what i mean have you have you noticed that the reaction to this has just been like extreme it, it does seem a little over the top and I think you know, there's been lots of, of conversation around like how identity checking is often done in Australia. There's a sort of like a, a hundred points of ID scheme that specifies you know what you're going to need to open a bank account or get a credit card or get a mobile phone account or whatever else and that this is sufficient data to kind of carry out that process and because it's pretty standardized in Oz that you know you'd be able to do it in a bunch of other contexts but it's kind but of not, not true. that simple it's, right? It's, it's, but it's not it's not true anyway because a driver's license counts for 60 points and a passport counts for 50. So all these people saying oh it's 100 points of ID all over the internet like it's it's actually just not true. And you know if you want to start a bank account here you actually have got to have 100 points, right? And and for this reason like for this reason. And exactly, yes. <laughs> yeah, and there's also been some weird reporting. Like, so in one of the sample sets of data, so so this person popped up on the on the breached forums, right? And was like saying, hey, I've got all of these, you know, millions of details and whatever. And they released a couple of sample sets, you know, one with a few hundred, I think, and one with like 10,000. And 0.5% of the 10,000 uh, person data set had Medicare numbers. But I'm guessing that's for people who didn't have driver's licenses or passports and they still needed to show some sort of ID, right? Now, the question then becomes, why is Optus keeping this information? We've seen a lot of really bad info on Twitter from uh, from some very enraged Australians pinning this on the Metadata Retention Act. But the act does not require that you keep this information. As best I can gather, the reason they're keeping it is in addition to being, you know, providing telecommunications services, you know, they do this on contract and they're essentially a credit provider. So I think they keep this stuff so that they can then pass that information on to like debt collect collection agencies and stuff and, you know, report bad credit with, uh, you know, official document numbers and stuff. So I think there is a business requirement there. And they have actually said that there's a legislative requirement, but then have very conveniently not actually said which, <laughs> you know, what that requirement is <laughs> or, or why, right? So the government response here has been interesting, right? Because initially I wasn't really going to spend much time on this story, you know, a breach at, a, at, a, at an Australian telco, you know, sort of whatever. But first of all, like the outrage here is just palpable. And second of all, there's been some interesting developments here. Now, one interesting development is that we've got a home affairs and cybersecurity minister, uh, Claire O'Neill, uh, you know, Harvard educated brain the size of a planet. And she's just not taking any shit. Um, from Optus <laughs> over this, right? So there's this, Optus put out a statement and it's that typical statement of this was a very sophisticated hack, right? A very sophisticated hack. So here's an exchange uh, between an interviewer on Australia's Broadcasting Corporation and our Home Affairs Minister and Cybersecurity Minister, uh, Claire O'Neill. Have a listen to this. What is uh, of concern for us is how what is a quite a basic hack was undertaken on Optus. We should not have a telecommunications provider in this country, which has effectively left the window open for data of this nature to be stolen. And the thing that's very uh, exercising for me as cybersecurity minister is why did this happen and how can we make sure it never happens again? Well, you certainly don't seem to be buying the line from Optus that this was a sophisticated attack. Well, it wasn't, so no. 
Oh, so savage. I love it. I love it. Now, since Uh, that interview went out, Optus has now been attacking the Home Affairs Minister and saying that, oh, you know, she did that interview before she saw our briefing and then saying really weird stuff like, we have multiple layers of encryption. So this whole idea that it was like an API open on the internet is wrong. Now, there's a, a journalist uh, based here in Australia named Jeremy Kirk. He's originally an American, but he's, he's lived in Australia for a long time. And he's just dominated the coverage of this. And he actually had... He actually reached out to the, uh, you know, I, I can't even call them a hacker. They, he actually reached out to the person who obtained this data on Breached and asked them how they got it. And, uh, you know, he, here's some audio from Jeremy on that. One of the big questions that was still outstanding as of uh, Saturday morning was, well, how, how did this all happen? You know, the ABC had suggested in a story that it was a unsecured, you know, API. Uh, but we still, Optus wasn't confirming it uh, officially, and we still, I was looking for other confirmation. So I just sent a message on breach forums to this uh, to this person, and this person came back and, yeah, confirmed it. And they confirmed it in such a way that, you know, I have no doubt about it because a second source had actually reached out to me earlier in the day. This source is in Australia, not affiliated with breach forums whatsoever, and gave me the URL for the API uh, that the data was downloaded from. And then, so I asked uh, the, the person on breach, I said, is this, you know, what's, what's, the, <laughs> what's the URL for the API? And he, he, he gave it, he or she gave it. And so that matched. And so again, a very strong sign that we know how this actually happened. Yes, yeah, so I'm not sure that I'm buying CEO the CEO of Optus's claim, oh, like this wasn't about an API being left open when all signs point to an API being exposed. And I mean, let's face it, that's a very believable thing to happen. I mean, telco, lots of APIs, lots of microservices, lots of change. Yeah, it can totally happen. Sounds 100% believable to me. So, yeah, and the that kind of line about it being a super sophisticated attacker, you know, defeating multiple layers of encryption, like that's such a tired, hackneyed, terrible PR response that that also sounds believable for a telco. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, as much as we talk, like like we did when we were talking about Uber, as much as we talk about how like mistakes are made and you can't always prevent them and whatever, it's my feeling that they should have caught this, right? That this should not have been allowed to happen, that it indicates perhaps some really bad change control procedures and inadequate monitoring. But I wanted to get your perspective on this because you've been, you've been in these sort of environments a lot more uh, than I ever have. So, you know, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so telcos are a, a strange place, right? They're a mixture of, you know, quite often quite robust risk management processes. I mean, telcos have been doing security for a long time, fraud and, and um, you know, handling important data for a long time. And so they often do have quite robust process, but then... The implementation of those processes, especially in a you know agile kind of very fluid, fast-moving world that we now are in, is kind of incompatible with how telcos are like used to doing engineering. Like they're used to engineering classics, you know, circuit switched, relatively slow-moving, relatively robust environments, and now you know making those same environments you know, deal with the modern internet age. It, it does lead to bad outcomes, and you know the idea that someone would spin up an API, you know, connected to some service bus, connected to some API gateway, connected to the internet. Sadly believable, but also, like, it's what the risk management processes and all of the assurance and everything else they do is, is meant to stop. And it's just, you know, it really isn't, isn't good enough to hose all your customer data out, uh, you know, onto the internet in that way. So I guess, I guess really, though, the question is, should we be mad? Are we justified in being mad at Optus over this? Is it really a, as catastrophic a failure as people feel it is? 
I mean, we have to go outcomes-based, right? Losing all your customer data or at least a large proportion of it, you know, without auth on the internet is just bad. And yes, we should be mad. I mean, there's lots of other things that telcos do wrong that we can also be mad about. But yeah, we should be mad at them. Like, it's just not good enough. And, you know, no amount of excuses makes up for the fact that in the end, you did just lose a whole bunch of data that perhaps you should have treated with a bit more respect and for people, you know, out there in the, you know, in the world being told their data has been, you know, stolen or lost, it's bewildering and not at all clear what they should do about it. So yeah, we should totally be mad at them. But Adam, they had multiple levels of encryption. <laughs> <laughs> they had the one TLS on the outside and the next TLS on the inside and that went straight through to the get request that had not have auth. So yeah, good good for I think, you. Buddy. I mean, maybe they were using full disk encryption on the boxes where that... <laughs> that's a, you know, maybe that's it, yeah. Full disk encrypted on the box, TLS on the unauthenticated API, all gravy in the middle. And yet someone managed to blast through those defences. I know. Oh, what sophisticated, amazing military-grade adversary could it have been? <laughs> this story actually has another interesting element to it, where the Australian Federal Police spun up an operation called Operation Hurricane, and I believe they were cooperating with overseas law enforcement, probably the FBI, uh, and the Australian Signals Directorate, right? And then we had like the Assistant Commissioner Cyber Command uh, at AFP, Justine Goh, you know, she, she popped up in the media saying some freaky stuff, right? So she said, you know, we're, we're aware of reports of stolen data being sold on the dark web, and that is why the AFP is monitoring the dark web using a range of specialist capabilities. Criminals who use pseudonyms and anonymizing technology can't see us, but I can tell you that we see them. And that's just like... You know, it's not often that the feds say something that just, it's just a little unsettling when they speak like that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that is a good time to be unsettled if you're on one of those, you know, on one of those forums or in those kinds of environments. But I mean, you know, law enforcement says that kind of thing all the time. But, you know, maybe, I don't know, it was more convincing in this particular case. <laughs> well, I think, why don't we talk about what make, made it more convincing, Adam? What happened to the user Optus data on the breached forum? Well, so they uh, they had a post up um, you know, offering to sell the data. There was some demand for a ransom of $1 million to delete it. Uh, they have since edited that post uh, to apologise to Optus and wish them well uh, and say that they have now deleted their only copy of the data and uh, maybe that could be that now, which... Yes. A little, yeah, bit of a change of heart evident here. Yeah, so this rapid change of heart by this, uh, you know, again, I can't really call them a hacker when all they did was download data from an unauthenticated API that was published to the internet. Um, but, you know, I'm guessing maybe someone, like, I'm, the way I think this happened is that either AFP or the FBI or ASD, they figured out who this guy was and they rang his mum. That's the only thing I can think. I mean, that sounds like the right course of action. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the hounds being released and the hounds phoning someone's mum, you know, would ring pretty true uh, for this kind of thing. I mean, there's the, the certainly a lack of ambition of going for a million dollars, which kind of makes it seem a bit small scale. Uh, and then, yes, the very rapid about face it does sound like um, perhaps their OPSEC wasn't as good as they thought or perhaps OPSEC was a thing they didn't realise they needed until after they downloaded the data <laughs> or something like that. But it's nice to see, you know, a change of heart so quickly. Yeah, yeah. And it was a, it was just such a radical about face, right, from this, uh, you know, presumably a kid. And it's funny that you keep mentioning the $1 million because there was a lot of, there were a lot of jokes on Australian Twitter about how, like, you know, <laughs> they're asking for a million dollars. Obviously, they don't live in Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
where you know a million dollars might buy you a one bedroom uh, one bedroom apartment on the uh, on the outskirts kind of thing. So Sydney's Sydney for those who don't know, Sydney is a um, ridiculous um, ridiculously expensive um, city. So there you go. I do wonder though, you know, given if if this did you know unfill like like we're joking about with the you know the ASD or AFP whoever you know phoning someone's mum, I wonder how how many you know other Australian companies could expect you know the same sort of white glove treatment from your government. I mean uh, you know Australia becoming you know, inhospitable uh, to attackers, you know, because your government was you know, willing to go and, you know, release some hounds and shake some sticks. You know, maybe that's an interesting strategy. Maybe that's a, a good place to go. You know, my, my view on this, I, I, I kind of have absorbed a lot of Tom Uren's thinking since he's been working with us. And what he always says about, you know, government agencies like the Australian Federal Police and like the Australian Signals Directorate is they're very good at doing things when it's, when they're a priority, right? And... Uh, you know, obtaining the PII of 40% of the Australian population or, you know, somewhere around the 40% mark is the sort of thing that motivates politicians. The fact that this was such a media issue as well uh, is also something that really motivated the politicians. So I think this is proof that, like, when the pain is acute enough, governments are actually capable of doing something about it. I mean, of course, we don't have any sort of confirmation that this is what's happened here, but uh, I feel it in my waters. Let's just put it that way. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It does. It rings quite sort of believably true. Um, and I, yeah, I just wonder, you know, if you're another Australian company going through the process of, you know, kind of tabletop exercising how you'd handle a data breach, you know, whether the, you know, ASD, swinging in on your side and, and helping out and making the problem go away, like whether that's a thing you would have on your tabletop exercise or whether you'd be like, oh, no, that'll never, you know, it's just a, it just alters the risk calculus a little bit if you can expect that kind of fire support. Yeah, I think, I think though, that like to view this as the Australian government doing a favour for a big company is perhaps looking at it from the wrong point of view, right? Like I, I really do think it's that this data, at least to, to some degree, you know, it getting out there and into the hands of all bad people would present kind of a systemic risk and impose like measurable costs on the economy. I mean, even if people were just using it to do SMS phishing, right? Or sending out fake invoices to Optus uh, customers that are loaded with malware or, you know, there's just a number of different ways that this data could be used at scale to inflict harm. So I don't think this is a this is an issue where it's like, oh, it's a big corporation. Like I think if it was a big corporation that didn't have a whole bunch of PII or present some sort of systemic risk to the to the wider economy, like they wouldn't have got the assistance. I think it really just is that it affected so many people and they thought, okay, we're making this a priority, release the hounds. Yeah, and that's a that's a great choice, you know. I I certainly think, you know, there's a bunch of other governments that could do with, you know, understanding the big picture you know, what it means nationally when you've got issues like this in the private sector. Uh, and, you know, that kind of historical separation between the private sector and, and the state's, you know, infosec capability, you know, we've definitely been breaking down those barriers over the last five, ten years. Um, and it's kind of nice to see an example of it work and how, you know, how we've kind of imagined it should on the show a bunch of times over the years. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. You know, I mean, I'm sure AFP did most of the heavy lifting here, but the fact that they could actually rely on a an agency that is normally tasked with doing stuff like, you know, cyber espionage and collection, the fact that they could actually rely on an agency like that to, you know, help them overcome some of the hurdles involved in doing this sort of thing, you know, I think this is, if that's what what's happened here, it is a great case study. Yeah, exactly. And what's the point of having those hounds if they just sit in the kennels all day long, right? 
Yeah. Uh, now, we've got some information from CISA here, Adam. Uh, it turns out the Iranian attackers who uh, did all that damage to uh, computer systems in Albania uh, had been uh, in the networks, uh, in those government networks, for something like 14 months before they activated the, uh, you know, the, the chaos part of their campaign. Yes, and that's, uh, I guess, interesting, but also you know, probably what you would expect, uh, you know, a government agency, you know, Spook's going to be in there doing some intel gathering at first, and then at some point, you know, political leaders or whoever else are going to demand, uh, you know, active measures, and uh, and off you go, you get to burn all your access, burn some things down, and, you know, I suppose that that might be quite a nice change of pace around the office, you know, you've been sitting there doing spooking and being quiet all that time, you know, to actually go torch some things, probably quite satisfying, um, although... Obviously, it didn't work out so well uh, for political relations. No, it didn't. Um, so link in this week's show notes to that. But there's also been a lot of stuff happening in Iran at the moment, like a lot of protests. Some poor woman was uh, arrested uh, for, for not wearing her headscarf correctly or something by the moral- morality police who, you know, killed her. And uh, this, of course, has displeased uh, people in Iran uh, who've taken to the streets in some, you know, fairly large demonstrations. And there's been some extremely, immensely satisfying footage uh, on the internet of uh, ordinary Iranians kicking the shit out of cops, which I just, you love to see it. But, you know, the government there has been doing stuff like shutting down internet access uh, outside of certain hours. So at like 4.30pm, bang, the internet goes down, doesn't come up again uh, until until the next day, that sort of thing, as, as a way to try to stem some of these protests. But what's interesting is we're now starting to see the, the US Treasury uh, considering giving an exemption to Starlink so that Starlink can do business in Iran and kind of get uh, a type of internet access into the place that can't trivially be shut down. What do you think of this? I guess the tools that Iran has for internet censorship have been, you know, they've tried to apply nuance in the past, you know, by filtering individual bits of content, individual sites. You know, now with the experience of Iranians with VPN technology, uh, and the existence of you know circumvention options that you know th- they're down to pretty blunt things you know TLS everywhere is kind of working how it should you either the internet is on and usable or it's off uh, and having to move to off is a you know is a pretty big deal for them because the you know the amount of political protest the amount of unrest that causes you know is the amount of disruption that causes is is very real and observable and then seeing how Starlink has been used in Ukraine. Um, you can definitely see why you know, Iranians who are pretty sophisticated at bypassing blocks on their internet access would look to Starlink as an option. So you know, Musk was saying that they have, you know, un-geo-restricted the the like the satellites themselves, so they can transmit uh, into and, and receive from inside Iran. You know, I think given Iranian citizens' sophistication at circumventing their government's bans, like we're going to see them, you know getting Starlink in and it, you know, becoming a really, you know, a political player in the in Iran, much like it has become with, you know, Russia and, and Ukraine as well. Yes. Well, speaking of, um, there's actually some interesting stuff unfolding on the telco front in Ukraine right now. Matt Burgess over at Wired has a really interesting and and, and detailed write-up of these Russian telcos that have popped up in occupied territories in Ukraine and 
it's a really interesting examination of how Russia is using telcos to sort of push its soft power, right? And look, I'm guessing that there's also other advantages, which is if you're using a Russian telco, uh, you're going to be surveilled very, very heavily. Uh, but what's interesting too is like the, the way that they've done the billing, which is if you sign up with one of these telcos, calls to Russian numbers are cheaper than calls to Ukrainian numbers, right? So it, I, I just found this a fascinating write-up. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting as well. It underscores, you know, just how important communications tech, mobile phone tech is. Uh, and yeah, there's, as you said, like there's just so many interesting angles to it, like the differentiated billing costs, the you know its use as a demonstration of social control of infrastructure of the fact that you you are now the you know the authority in the region you brought your own mobile network. Uh, it's also interesting, you know, when we've seen reports in the past of you know Ukrainian. You know, uh, people destroying mobile phone equipment, um, you know, as they were pulling back earlier, uh, and you know, just seeing the mobile network as a parallel, you know, battle space to the the physical world and the relationship. It's just really interesting, um, and I'm sure very unpleasant for everybody who lives there. Um, but yeah, as a you know, the importance of that kind of soft power because communications are simple. Oh, yeah, it's just really interesting. But I mean, I, I think it's funny, right, that it that it all comes back to this thing that we've said on the show before, which is kind of everything is politics, right? So when the US are pushing Starlink into Iran, it's good. But when the Russians are pushing cell service into yes. Ukraine, it's bad, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, and, yeah. It, and it all really just depends on the wider context around it. But But what's undeniable is that is that this stuff is part of the game now. I guess that's where I'm where I'm going with this. Network access is a tool of politics. Yes, yeah, exactly. And, you know, much like supply chain and having, you know, interoperability between, you know, computer systems and networks and yeah, all of this stuff is and always has been, but we've kind of been in denial about it, rooted in politics and power. Uh, and, you know, those of us that grew up in the nineties when the internet really wasn't a space that had that kind of you know, kind of political dynamic in it, or had less of it, I suppose. But yeah, it is. It's just interesting to see you know, that we've never been immune to this, and we were just you know pretending and and being fantasists. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. We've grown up. We yeah, we all have yeah. dead hearts now. We're dead inside. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, funnily enough, when I heard about the Optus thing, uh, you know, I said earlier I didn't find it that interesting because I'm dead inside. Uh, Adam, I've spent too long as a cyber war correspondent yeah, in the cyber yeah. trenches. I feel nothing. <laughs> Uh, we got an interesting report from our very own Catalan Kimpanu here. He's written up a report from Mandiant, which has pinned a bunch of like uh, Russian hacktivist activity on the GRU. So this is the like Zachnet, uh, Zachnet team, uh, Info Center and Cyber Army of Russia Reborn. Yeah, you know, all grassroots, totally hacktivist people, only they're not. They're, they're GRU operations. Yeah, like th this pattern is now so well worn uh, with the GRU going back to, you know, Guccifer and, and all of their previous, you know, kind of fronts. Yeah, this just, it seems so transparent now, um, now that we're used to this this way of operating. And yeah, no one no one believes you anymore, GRU. You're, we know who you are. You're all the, the, the fancy bears uh, and we don't believe you anymore. Uh, and meanwhile, Ukraine says that it's expecting some pretty major uh, attacks against its critical infrastructure, cyber attacks against its critical infrastructure. Uh, so both sort of disruptive type of stuff like we saw in 2015 and 2016, where, uh, you know, uh, Russian state-backed actors were uh, able to, uh, you know, disrupt power supplies and things like that. They're expecting that. And also DDoS. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's not really clear whether this warning is based on any specific intelligence or whether or not it's just vibes 
Yeah, I mean, certainly you would expect this kind of stuff to be going on full stop. Uh, there's been some, you know, kind of idea that given the military side of it hasn't been going too well for Russia and, you know, we've seen them attacking power plants and other pieces of, of infrastructure that if they can't do it in, in the kinetic domain, then maybe pushing forward uh, in the cyber world makes a bunch of sense. But also, you, you know, Ukraine just has so much experience now dealing with Russian attacks on its critical infrastructure that I imagine it's harder than it used to be uh, and they maybe some degree of just, you know, kind of yelling from the top at, in Moscow uh, that, you know, the people who charged with delivering this are you know, probably pretty disrupted and having a rough time, you know, delivering action on objectives in the way that they, you know, might have done in the past. So, yeah, we don't know. You would certainly expect if you worked in those fields right now that, you know, you're a prime target and uh, you should have, as Scissor would say, your shields up. Yes, shields up and everything will be fine. That's absolutely right. Uh, shields up forever. Now, we've got a hilarious one here from Krebs on Security, which is uh, this 36-year-old Russian man uh, who Krebs on Security like doxed as the likely proprietor of the RSOX botnet. Uh, he's been arrested in Bulgaria at the request of uh, US authorities. And oddly enough, this guy wants to be extradited to the United States. Gee, I wonder why that is. <laughs> yes, it's certainly an interesting twist on the usual story where they're fighting extradition, but no, this guy is... Uh says that he has much useful information uh, that the US government would like to receive and that he should be extradited uh, forthwith. So, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine why, you know, he wouldn't want to go back to Russia at this point uh, or, you know, be exposed to the sorts of things that some of his employees and colleagues. This was actually the guy that Krebs um, docked a while back with, like, he'd posted, like, pictures of his company which, you know, were doing crime, just but, but like treated like a regular startup and was posting pictures on his blog and things. So, yeah, he got, got doxxed pretty hard by the Krebs. Um, and, yeah, not a great time to be heading home now, I suspect. No, and it looks like uh, he was actually named in an indictment from 2019. So the feds were already on him before Krebs wrote him up, but they only just unsealed the, the indictment on September 23. So, yeah, um, that's pretty funny. Now, look, staying with, um, you know, the theme of, you know, I saw someone describe it uh, these days, Russians live in the uh, behind the irony curtain, uh, not the <laughs> so iron good. curtain. It's the irony curtain because, like, normally, you know, people leave a country when it gets invaded, whereas it's the other way around right now <laughs> in Russia, where they're the ones doing the invading, also the ones with the exodus. Uh, and it, you know, in in keeping with that theme, we've got a story here from Russian media that Catalan Kimpanu found and popped into our Slack today, where Russians are getting scammed online by people who are claiming to be able to sell them like uh, medical exemptions from military service and stuff. Yes. We don't really know how many people are being scammed, um, but yeah, seems like a good way to make money, um, offering medical IDs, and then they've got some ability to update the databases, uh, provide you with the relevant documentation, courier it around. Apparently, these scams don't really proceed past uh, the you know initial having to pay a deposit phase or, or whatever, however it works out. Uh, I don't know that anyone's actually getting uh, you know their uh, their medical exemption certificates, uh, even if they do pay money to strange people on Telegram. Yeah, I mean, it's just one more example of how the mobilization is just not going particularly well uh, for Russia, right? No. When <laughs> no, no. you know your own criminal ecosystem is like undermining your. Yeah. Anyway, it's just yeah. like it, it's all going Pete Tong. Um, but I just found that one very, very funny. Yeah, we got another uh, story here from Brian Krebs on, uh, you know, violence in the sim swap community. It feels like he's tapped into a rich vein of coverage and we can expect to read a story from Brian at least weekly about some poor kid getting the sh kicked out of them uh, over some sim swap stuff. 
Yeah, Krebs definitely has a good line here. Um, it's a, an angle that I think, you know, A, it makes for compelling reporting. B, it kind of makes this crime stuff a lot more real. You know, it's not just internet anymore. You know, you do, if you're going to go play in this world, this is, you know, there's good precautionary tales for people who are thinking about, you know, participating in, in the weird cryptocurrency or sim swapping or these kinds of, you know, relatively straightforward but good money-making schemes that, you know, end up in, in very real criminal situations. And this kid... You know, uh, Krebs has got some, you know, pictures from the ransom, like the video that this kid made, you know, with guns pointed at him in the back of the car, bleeding on the shirt. It's pretty rough. We've long joked around, you know, on ISC of, you know, p people showing up someone else's house and, you know, threatening them after you, you know, shoot them on Call of Duty or something. But seeing that stuff kind of made real and being able to just buy, you know, throw a brick through someone's window as a service, you know, on a forum. Yeah, it's just, an, I don't know, it's a nastier, meaner world than we're used to, you know. Ain't that the truth? Now, uh, some time ago, you and I spoke about this uh, takeover of like a, it was like a crypto exchange or some sort of crypto uh, project that involved BGP hijacking a bunch of Amazon IPs and then getting a, uh, you know, one of those free DV certs on a 90 day trial or whatever and, and, and doing the attack that way. And they, they were able to stop the attack fairly quickly, but we've got some interesting follow-up reporting here from Dan Gooden at Ars, which says that, um, you know, that they were able to like host a malicious copy of that site for something like three hours and uh, uh, the attackers were able to score about 235 grand uh, out of this. Yes, and Dan, you know, it's kind of dug into some of the details of actually how they did it. So they were running, you know, a fake smart contract in the way, you know, that was proxying through to the real one using the certs, uh, and also, you know, went and had a look a bit about how some of the BGP hijacking was done, where it came from. And actually, I felt a bit, I felt that Dan's headline, which was, you know, how three hours of inaction from Amazon costs cryptocurrency holders, blah blah blah. I thought three hours was pretty good. Like when we talked about it last on the show, I thought, you know, Amazon getting network engineers to, you know, spot something wrong and deal with it in three hours seemed pretty good to me i'm trying to think you know when i worked network engineering how long it would take to figure out that someone was bgp jacking some of our stuff and and go fix it you know three hours three hours seems pretty good to me so did they detect it and shut it down after three hours or was it three hours from when Celebridge actually contacted them and complained yeah, it's not quite clear. I mean, you would uh, certainly hope that Amazon had automated detection in place for spotting their stuff being announced in strange places. Um, and so maybe it was maybe it was that or, yeah, we're not quite. I mean, trying to find someone at Amazon, like trying to escalate a BGP hijack to Amazon through like the front end support process seems like that ought to take longer than three hours. So perhaps it was detected automatically. It seems seems likely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's keep going now. And yeah, we got a bit of sort of DDoS related news, right? Which is why we sort of kicked it to the back of the show because DDoS is you know, kind of boring, but they keep getting bigger. And that's the thing. Like they're boring, they're a blunt tool, but they work and they're getting bigger. So we've got another one from Dan Gooden to talk about now. Yes, it's always nice to see some stats. I mean, obviously the numbers have been going up over the years. Um, what's also interesting in these stats is the mix between, you know, just blunt volumetric, which was kind of what we used to report on, you know, this many terabits, uh, and then this many packets per second. Uh, and we are starting to see, you know, DDoS using other, you know, more application layer-centric things. You see reports from from Cloudflare and, and Imperva and other, you know, DDoS mitigation vendors, you know, where they're seeing attackers using HTTP2 with pipelining, uh, you know, cramming multiple requests down a single connection uh, and, you know, 
are actually attacking the application logic a bit more, which makes sense, right? It's gonna it's gonna work well. Um, but yeah, it just kind of indicates that you know, DDoS has never been one dimensional, just volumetric, um, and seeing you know the the rise I and mean, the stats here, you know, have some. Um, Breakdown for like you know duration, number of packets, um, the volumetric sizing, how much is being distributed around the place, the speed at which some of the modern DDoS botnets can kind of adjust where they're coming from or coordinate well. So it's just a you know it's an attack class that has matured a lot since you know the early days of of kids just doing this with botnets rigged together out of you know home modems or whatever else. I do need to pull you up on a style guide violation, Adam. Uh, Cloudflare, when we refer to Cloudflare on this show, it's always uh, Nazi cuddlers, Cloudflare. Um, just so you... Um, <laughs> yes, just, of course, just yes. So my bad, my bad. Uh, and we've also got a report from Jonathan Grieg. Uh, he looked at a report from NetScout, which says that, um, you know, regional disputes are kind of fueling DDoS, right? And and making it worse. And it just, yeah, it just sort of, it's just one of those things where it's been around so long and nothing really changes. They just sort of keep getting bigger and badder. And, you know, it's just something that we have to live with, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is. And I think, you know, tying it in with, you know, geopolitical relations and conflict, you know, that's interesting uh, that we do see a correlation between, you know, when things are going wrong, that this is a tool that gets used, you know, even if it is a dumb and not very exciting for us tool, that it is a thing that is still a part of, you know, uh, of political relations and activism and even just, you know, citizens exerting their feelings about their neighbours or, or political rivals. So, yeah, it's, we, we do just have to live with it. And I guess the rise of Nazi cuddlers, Cloudflare uh, and other DDoS mitigation providers you know, just shows how you know, necessary this is now, sadly. Uh, we're going to finish here with a story from the Daily Swig, uh, which is some supply chain analysis has found that my personal favourite bug is everywhere. Yes, this is a look back at a bug in Python's handling of the tar compression format uh, that is vulnerable and has been since like 2007, uh, vulnerable to path traversal, uh, which your favorite bug class, certainly one of mine as well. Um, it's actually documented as a feature in the original Python implementation of, of the tar processing and, and developers that are supposed to just not process tar files from an untrusted location, according to the docs. Uh, but yeah, this is a look into, uh, you know, in the supply chain of open source software, you know, where the old kind of, you know, Python 2 era version of this library is included. And it's still very, very widely, widely used. Python 2 um, is still, you know, super common. Uh, and this person's analysis, uh, Mr. Douglas McKee, said something like uh, 300,000 files um, that they looked at in their survey still use this old vulnerable version of, uh, of Python tar. So, yeah, old bug uh, still delivers the goods. Yeah, I love how it's got a CVSS 6.8. And this is a perfect example of where CVSS scores don't really tell you the impact because it so depends, right? Because it's a straight yeah, up 10. Exactly. Uh, you know, if, if any one random person off the internet can just submit a tar file and it's going to unpack it using this. Yes, yeah, exactly. Unless you've got some kind of other mitigation, which probably, you know, most people just, you know, import the thing from the standard library and Python standard libraries are, you know, generally pretty safe, except where the documentation says otherwise. And, and yeah, I, and off you go. Um, and whether it means nothing or everything is entirely up to the context of the application. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, Adam, that is actually it for this week's news. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. It's always a pleasure to chat to you, my friend, and we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. Talk to you then.
That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Ravi Srinivasan, the CEO of Votero. Votero makes CDR tech, that's content disarm and reconstruction, and the idea is you throw a document or a file at their API, at their tech, it strips that file down and reassembles it while leaving bad stuff like embedded OLE objects out of the reassembled file. Uh, So they actually cover a really wide variety of file types, even stuff like audio and video video files in addition to, you know, PDFs and documents and whatever. Uh, and yeah, Vertero has been around for a long time. Uh, so some people use it to do stuff like uh, they'll put it on a mail gateway and use it to strip bad stuff out of email attachments. But increasingly, as you're going to hear, people are using this type of tech in different ways these days. They're using it to sanitize documents headed for data lakes, uh, you know, for document exchange, for, you know, loan application documents that come from people everywhere, right? So the idea is wherever you've got a lot of documents, you use this. And a reason you might use CDR on this stuff instead of like malware scanning is you don't really want a loan application getting black holed by a AV scanner. Really? I mean, uh, that's that's the advantage here. Anyway, here is Ravi Srinivasan. What happens in a data lake is they're attracting content from third-party partners, supply chain vendors, and how do you ensure that the files going into the data lake is safe? The, the second use case is file exchanges. Uh, more and more of the digital processes are automated today, where a logistics company Uh, connects with um, 800 to 900 subsidiaries, all using an API to exchange files. On one end, you have a beautiful data management platform. On the other hand, you have 900 subsidiaries all sending files via APIs. How do you ensure that those files aren't weaponized? So a content disarm and reconstruction is a service that's getting adopted closest to the data management platform, ensuring that the files coming in are safe and can land into the organization. The third use case that we've seen um, that companies are implementing content disarm and reconstruction is in the web downloads. We see more and more companies that are um, setting up a beautiful distributed connectivity and network access using Secure Access Service Edge. But what happens is that creates a blind spot. If you and I need to exchange files, and if my existing um, infrastructure doesn't allow me to do it, what do you do? We'll set up a collaboration site and then share files outside of this uh, infrastructure that's been set up. So we've implemented content disarm and reconstruction, integrating with collaboration software so that content will always be safe, whether it's you and I sharing it one-to-one are you and I sharing with multiple parties? So, I mean, Vitero has had like a SharePoint, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you've been able to use uh, Vitero on SharePoint servers for quite a long time. I guess that's just, you know, extending this out to cover other tech. Is that about it? It's extending it to cover new technologies and also delivering it as a more open API-based service. Yeah. Now, look, one of the things we we're talking about uh, just, just before we got recording is that it's not always just security buyers these days. You've got like these digital transformation and digital innovation teams and stuff buying this now. Uh, like one example that you gave me, and I found this this one interesting, was these companies that do a lot of outsourced like back office processing who are just handling just ex- insane volumes of, um, of documents. Why don't you walk us through how they're actually using uh, Vitero? If you look at uh, digitizing back offices, claims processing, loans processing, 
organizations hire 30, 40 people, set up the digital service. So organizations, those 30, 40 people are receiving files via emails. Now you can't tell them, don't open these files. <laughs> you, you want to keep them productive by opening these files and ensuring that they could process claims. So we have an organization that helped, uh, that we're able to process over $6 billion of loans using content disarmament reconstruction as a service. So remaining productive. So I like to call CDR as the usable security. You and I have been in security for quite some time where we are always looking at security as guns, guards, and gates, and it often wakes up at the wrong time blocking content. Now I think we're entering a phase where security is delivered as a usable service to actually enable secure business transformation. So this is an example where companies adopt content disarmament reconstruction in their digital process. I mean, I think, you know, generally speaking, malware scanning has got quite good uh, these days, right? But I, I think what you're bringing into focus here is an interesting, you know, it's probably the, the interesting selling point for something like a CDR tech, which is you don't have to deal with the false positive problem, right? Like you will not just have someone sending over a critically important loan document that just gets eaten by some malware scan somewhere in the platform and, and derails, um, you know, an important process. Is that the sort of unique selling point that people are buying this on? Absolutely. Every week I hear how organizations were able to stay productive, whether it's the chief financial officer, it's the financial analyst, it's the legal team. They were productive in doing their job. They got a password protected file, they got a zip archive, they got a PDF that they could open and do their jobs. A week later, two weeks later, when we analyzed the unknown threats that we had removed from the files, and analyze them using a retro scan capability, we're able to identify to the security team that that was a zero day attack or a new variant, new malware variant that was out in the wild just a few hours before the, um, the file got to the analyst or the user in the first place. So that is definitely a selling feature of content disarmament reconstruction. But what sort of volumes are we talking about for a typical customer? Because I'd imagine that the ones who are really using this tech are pumping an awful lot of content through the, you know, through these APIs. Yeah, we have two types of organizations. We have organizations that are processing millions of files on a daily basis, and that's through the API file exchange effort. Um, so in a quarterly time frame, we see companies processing 200 million files. That's one spectrum. The other spectrum yeah. is companies using very large files and processing them through these B2B efforts as well. And in those cases, again, on an average, we're, we're helping organizations process hundreds and thousands of files a day. Now, you know, Vitero uh, spun up quite a long time ago, right? And I think the original vision was for, you know, uh, it being an alternative to sandbox-based uh, secure email gateways, right? Like stuff like FireEye uh, and whatnot. Still some organizations out there who can't use uh, cloud-based services for whatever reason who are still using stuff like, uh, like FireEye and, uh, you know, that's a market that you can target. You know, how's that going for you? Are you finding that those orgs are finally pivoting off into more traditional mail services in the cloud or are you still picking up that sort of long tail of on-prem? So we have organizations that are deploying our cloud services in two modes. We have organizations adopting our cloud service as a public SaaS offering, where 
they're integrating our open API based service with within their own application environment. But we also have companies that have moved their on-prem infrastructure to a private cloud and deploying content disarmament and reconstruction as a private cloud instance. So which means in that case, we are in their own enclave, helping them with their data storage and uh, processing files within their containers as well. So we have both modes that we're helping organizations deploy. Uh, On-premise continues to be a, a, a long tail, if you will, uh, for primarily in public sector um, deployments. U.S. government, really. Let's be honest about what we're saying. U.S. and Asia-Pac governments as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, I also saw, you know, just in preparation for this um, uh, for this interview, I did a bit of research, and I see that you, you've added a whole bunch of new file types to, to Vitero, including like multimedia file types like uh, MP3 and .mov. You know, is this actually due to customer demand, or was this just something the team wanted to do? Why, why start covering these types of files? Yeah, it... All of our roadmap has been driven by our customer conversations. And what we've seen is organizations exchanging, continuing to see threat vectors of how um, audio files and video files are used as a way to get into infiltrating an organization. So we've seen companies ask us to be able to cleanse those type of files as well. So we added that file type. The one that I'm really most excited about is being able to support digital certificates. Organizations have found digital certificates in a lot of places that it shouldn't be. And we have been able to help organizations one first identify that those shouldn't be in those places and then helping them uh, correct those um, issues as well. So you mean actual authentication certificates, right? So you're actually doing secrets discovery. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So where are they popping up? Are, they, are you detecting them in documents and whatnot? We're detecting them in documents that have been exchanged via emails. We're seeing them as in data lakes, in open public uh, S3 buckets and, and Azure blobs. We're seeing them in storage uh, that the companies have used. Um, developers are always looking for shortcut to exchange files. And so we're able to detect them and ensure that those are not misused by bad actors. Now, I understand also something that you've added to the product is the ability for it to spit information into a seam. What sort of information are you actually passing off to like detection teams from a CDR platform? Because the whole point of CDR is it's not doing detections, right? So how do you know what information is going to be relevant to a detection team if you're not doing detection? What we're doing is to deliver to a SIM tool a lot of the file analytics as well as in objects that we've been able to clean out of a known good file. So you might you might strip an OLE object and then <clears throat> pass it off down to the town to the security team so that they can throw it in some storage and scan it later. That sort of thing. Exactly, and that along with the file analytics provides the context for the SIM tools to be able to operate and say. This is a malware that was unknown to the organization, wasn't detected on the network, wasn't detected on the endpoint, but was detected in the user interaction with the, with the file. So being able to provide the context of the file that, that came in, the objects that were removed that were, that were delivered to the SIM tool. So that's a rich amount of context that we're delivering to the SIM tool. Okay, Ravi Srinivasan, thank you so much for joining us uh, to update us on what's going on with Vitero. Uh, always interesting uh, to, to hear about that. Cheers. Thank you so much, Patrick. 
That was Ravi Srinivasan there, the chief executive of Votiro. Big thanks to him for that, and big thanks to Votiro for supporting this week's episode of Risky Business. And that is it for this week's show. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Seriously Risky Business with Tommy Wren in the Risky Business newsfeed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thank you.